0: I remember multiple times of, because I'd be in the kitchen and that overlooks the family room where you'd sit and watch television, he'd come out into the kitchen and then you'd look up and then he'd make a noise and then you'd stick the pillow over your ears and then you'd look up and then you'd put it down and you'd run into the bedroom and I felt, sick to the stomach actually, many times when I'd see that was going on. Particularly at home, because I knew that it you just were not dealing with it at all and he was oblivious.
1: Hello.
2: Hi, Dad, it's Jake.
1: Oh, where are you calling from? <laughs>
2: I'm calling from my work.
1: Oh, okay. Ready to go?
2: I actually have something I want to talk to you about, and was wondering if you have some time.
1: Oh, of course you can. I'll be imparting as much positive information to you as possible. <laughs>
2: Sounds good. So about six months ago, Elise sent me through this article about this disorder, mm-hmm. and I f- I saw myself in a lot of it.
1: Oh yeah. Is that good or bad?
2: Um, I I don't know. <laughs> like it, the thing with this condition is there's not much that's known about it. It's also not clinically recognised in practice. You know, if you were to like go to the doctor and say oh, I'm presenting the symptoms, there's pro- like a pretty good chance that they would have no idea what it is.
1: Right. Okay.
2: And what it is is like the the loose definition is hatred of sounds. But it's not hatred of music or, you know, hatred of talking. It's, it's this really kind of like visceral reaction to particular sounds. Um, yeah,
1: well, when I'm standing in the kitchen talking to you, I, I um, suck saliva back in my mouth and you can hear it.
2: So you were aware that I was aware of you making these saliva sounds?
1: Yeah, well, Mum mentioned it to me, yeah.
2: Do you remember what she said?
1: Um, it's difficult when you talk to Jake, Steve, because he's very sensitive to the noises that you make with your mouth when you're talking to him. And, and I said, well, I'm completely unaware of doing it.
2: Do you remember, like, if you came into the room or something, I would, like, walk out or I'd put my hands over my ears. Do you remember me doing any of that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And and what did you think I was doing?
1: I wasn't really sure. Um, I I just thought maybe you needed some privacy because of my presence at the kitchen sink. So you used to walk off into your room.
2: Did that upset you that I did that, though?
1: Um, yeah. Well, I I really would have liked to have talked to you more when you were growing up. Because um, I feel that there was a lot of communication that I wanted to get across to you. But it was difficult um, under those circumstances which I wasn't aware of.
2: Because I'm looking back now and I feel like... I was a real dickhead.
1: Well, I didn't feel that way about you.
2: Why not? I mean, I
1: love <laughs> you, so I just thought you needed privacy. But I mean, I I'm I'm not consciously aware of making the sounds. But if if I was, I, I'd um do my best not to.
2: I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health on 2SER and around Australia via the community radio network. From when I was about five or six, my dad, my sister and I would sit at the dining table during dinner and practice our multiplication tables. We did this on and off for a number of years, until one day I remember I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't sit at the same table as my dad. And that was because I began to notice the sounds he would make with his mouth during dinner. Loud chewing, his swallowing, and sucking saliva back into his mouth. I didn't find these sounds annoying. They enraged me. When I heard them, it was as if I could feel the blood running through the veins in my arms. My hands' legs would tense up and twitch... I was physically unable to sit there at the table and finish my dinner. But it didn't stop there.
0: I used to worry about the fact that this was creating a, a barrier, a big thing between the two of you, because you couldn't handle being in the same
2: room as him. So this is my mum, Leslie. If I was getting upset by the sounds my dad was making, I'd go to her. She was the one that I would vent to. What would I say? Would I be swearing? Would I be what?
0: You'd be very uptight and you'd be saying, I just can't, I can't put up with it. I can't, I can't go out there. I can't sit in the same room with him. I just can't do it. I can't do it. But I didn't know what to do about it. Trying to explain it was not an easy thing to do. And I think he just, I did bring it up with him many times, but because he's unaware of making the noises, I think he just thought I was making excuses for the situation. I must admit, I thought you were probably over-dramatising it a little bit.
2: So you thought I was being dramatic?
0: Probably a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, I probably did. But then I... I wasn't in your head. Um, By the way, since this has all come up recently, I must admit, I'm a lot more aware of the noises that he makes. They really annoy me, but not to the extreme that they do you. They're bearable for me. I don't think that's ever going to change unless you find a way of dealing with this, whatever you call it, that you have.
2: This extremely intense response to particular sounds is something called misophonia. It was first coined back in 2000 as literally hatred of sounds. However, at this point, there are no diagnostic criteria, no classifications recognising misophonia as a syndrome or psychiatric condition, which in itself, for those suffering the symptoms of misophonia, can make us feel even more crazy. Have you kind of verbalised something to someone who's making this sound and and they kind of just give you a look or, or tell you it's like, get over it?
3: Oh it's the worst. It's almost even why I was to a degree hesitant to even talk to you about it because I don't want to talk to somebody and them not understand it. because it, it's just it's rare that you find somebody who actually understands and who, who know where you're coming from.
2: So this is Ian.
3: My name is Ian Ellis. Uh, I'm from Dallas, Texas
2: in the United States. Ian is the first person that I've ever spoken to who also experiences misophonia. And his experience is quite similar to mine, except it's a guy at his work who is a loud and serial swallower and lip smacker. Ian says at times it has nearly driven him to quit his job because it was so bad. So he went and bought some earplugs, which do help some, but they don't come with a guarantee.
3: There have been times where before I get out of my car in the morning, I forget to put him in, and I sit down, and I don't think about it until he starts making those noises. And then I'm like, oh my god, I forgot the earplugs. And then I just start sweating and twitching, and I'm looking at the clock on my computer, like nonstop, I'm thinking like, okay, when... Can I discreetly get up and leave the office like I'm going to go use the restroom? Uh, I just got here. It's only been about 15 minutes. Should I wait till about nine o'clock or you know maybe nine thirty? I'll go out. It, it's such a crazy thing that happens, and then I go into this insane mode of thinking and this logic just to get earplugs to prevent this, you know. And at this point, I'm already triggered, and it's you know it doesn't help that much.
2: Ian has made more progress than I have in terms of figuring out how to live with this thing, misophonia. He says he's given a type of exposure therapy a go, where he's jumped online to a particular website that collected a number of trigger sounds and gets you to sit there, listen to them, and try and train your brain to associate that trigger sound with something not so bad. But he gave up on that pretty quickly because it was... Torture.
3: I just, I, I can't, you know, like I'm not going to sit there and torture myself like that.
2: When that didn't work, he even took himself to anger management
3: classes a little while back, which was just completely not right. Completely not for me or anything. It, It wouldn't be useful at all. It's just trying to find something to do, you know?
2: That's so true because I feel like if I were to go to, well, I have been to a psychologist before about this actually, and it didn't really go anywhere but the idea of saying like even for you like oh no you have anger management issues like well no that's not really it like if you're saying that i have one thing when i in fact have something completely different which you don't know about like
3: what's the damage if you're going to say that i do have that thing and i don't have it exactly i mean if they put me on anti-anxiety medication right like what would that do i feel like i would still get triggered for misophonia. And if I wasn't, SSRIs are pretty dangerous. Anti-anxiety medication is like no joke. You know, I'd be real hesitant to take it to treat something that that isn't really well known. You know, so it's like until it's an actual diagnosis and it's like medically recognized, you know, that's, that's why I'm hesitant to tell people about it. I guess I can give a good example I was like a I was a pretty slow reader growing up even though I loved to read books and stuff I loved and loved to read but I was just a slow reader I didn't piece it together until really later in life to actually look into it but I found out that I have dyslexia to a certain degree and it it never occurred to me to get diagnosed it never occurred to anybody else but you know if you tell somebody you're dyslexic or you think you're dyslexic or you have issues like that they're like oh yeah i get numbers confused too or something or you know they don't believe you but as soon as you say no i've been diagnosed with dyslexia they're like oh okay really yeah how does that affect you and blah 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 you know like suddenly it's a real thing that a medical professional has said like you officially have this people become much more understanding
2: If misophonia were in fact clinically recognised, do you think that more people would start to take us seriously?
3: Yes, definitely.
2: Coming up, should we really diagnose misophonia? trying to think how the best... I need you together, though, because I can't, like, jump the this mic is around. obviously okay. in
0: regards to what Jake was talking to you about.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. the misophonia thing. Yeah, OK. Um, I, I wanted I my know. mum and dad to sit down together to hash out what had been years of back-and-forth conversations between me and my mum trying to get her to tell him to shut up and then my mum telling my dad to stop making the noises... I remember lashing out directly at my dad a number of times when I was young, but bringing it up in this sort of intervention-style table you was a first for all of us.
4: I mean, I used to think, what's going on here?
0: Hang on, a lot more than what you were saying, because you'd say to me, what's he doing that? Why is he leaving the room? You did. Mm. You used to get quite upset by it.
4: I want you to. I want you to well, say. Well, I mean, I just used to. I used to think it was rude. Yeah, I just thought. I mean, I I haven't done anything. I mean, I was I was only doing a bit of washing and wiping up, and maybe wanted to have a conversation with you, and you just leave the room. So it was.
0: <laughs> you do more than that.
4: You stick the pillow over his head. Yeah. <laughs> then you just walk out.
0: No, you run out sometimes. Run out
4: sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> What did you think? He doesn't want to know about me. So, and there's nothing I can say that will change it. You can't tell a kid to want to know about somebody's company. So there was nothing that I could do about it. I could accept the fact that you didn't like me. I could accept that fact.
0: No, you got very upset sometimes when you did that. I know I got upset,
4: but I still could accept the fact that he may not like me. You know, just because I'm your father doesn't mean you've got to like me. Well, you don't have to, you know. So I used to get really upset by it because I didn't know I was doing anything. But the other side of me is, well, if he doesn't like me, he doesn't like me. Just because I'm your father doesn't mean you're going to have any relationship with me. doesn't mean you've got to. doesn't mean you've got to, you know, you don't have to. When I first found
2: out about the word misophonia, I jumped to a conclusion pretty quickly. I remember thinking, oh my God, this is it. This is it. This explains everything. It was a massive light bulb moment for the first time. I'm like, there's a name for this. There, There are other people who experience this. I've found the answer. But this moment is also the problem because I was diagnosing myself, diagnosing myself with a condition that in a clinical environment has no diagnostic criteria. And you know everyone Googles their symptoms today so self-diagnosis can easily be a misdiagnosis. It's like me saying I have pneumonia when it's just a common cold. But if I see myself so strongly in these symptoms and, and not in anything else like general anxiety disorder, Is there a harm in that? Is that validation that I'm not the only one feeling this way enough? I thought I should get an expert opinion on this one, so I asked Josephine.
5: Hi, my name is Dr Josephine Paparo. I'm a clinical psychologist at the University of Technology, Sydney.
2: Josephine says she gets why I, and others like Ian, might self-diagnose our misophonia, as more people share their experiences online and more research pops up about it. And Josephine doesn't think the problem is this self-diagnosis part, but recognising that the idea of diagnosis works differently for everyone. For some, it's a validation, but for others, it's something quite different.
5: Sometimes I have clients who come to me and are very clear on the fact that they don't want to be labelled. I'm not my diagnosis. I'm not my illness. And for other people, there's very real practical concerns they have. There's a lot of hysteria and fear around what the impact of diagnoses will have, for example, on life insurance and health insurance in the future and whether it compromises access to those kind of services. And so there's a lot of concern about is this something I want on my medical record? And what are the implications of that?
2: And for some, a diagnosis is absolutely necessary.
5: So for example, um, the Helping Children with Autism initiative from the Australian government, you need a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder before the age of seven to get access to funding. In those cases, the issue of diagnosis, the stakes are higher. uh, And certainly in other cases where medication might be prescribed.
2: Whether or not... People would want a diagnosis for misophonia. The reality is we aren't at that point now anyway, because we don't understand enough about what causes it or what's happening in the brain to be able to diagnose it. But researchers are starting to get some ideas. Philip Gander from the University of Iowa in the States was part of a research project that exposed 200 people to a group of typically annoying sounds and then some trigger sounds. So annoying would be like the sound of traffic, and a trigger sound would be someone chewing loudly with food in their mouth. What Philip's study found is that when exposed to a trigger sound... A connection between two points in the brain, and bear with me here, between the anterior insula and the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, let's just call it the A and the V. The connection between A and V, this is where a lot of your information processing happens, so everything
6: you see, hear, experience. Between A and V. A person who doesn't have misophonia is able to turn off this information And in the people with the misophonia, then this connection is wrong, essentially, or is broken, um, or the activity is is ramped up in a different way.
2: And why does that happen? Why can't people who experience misophonia kind of shut down that hyperactive connection?
6: We really just don't know. It'll take more research, but... It lends to ideas in uh, which you'd have questions about, of course, is there a genetic basis to this sort of thing, or is it just simply a learned response? And so the, the learning hypothesis is not a bad one, because as mm-hmm. is often the case The people who suffer from this will be able to account for being aware of this annoyance into childhood. And some people can even remember like the first time it ever happened. And usually it's in relation to some sound generated by a family member in, in their childhood. Um, I don't know if that's the case for you or not, but it's, it's a real thing that has a very clear set of responses in the brain that, that seemed very characteristic for us and very clear.
2: Good, uh, not crazy. Yeah,
6: not crazy.
0: must have really upset you though, the fact that you felt that annoyed by it, that you had to run out of the room, and that must have also set a terrible emotional thing on you as well. Did you think it was just the noises you were making, or did you think that it just he just annoyed the crap out of me?
2: I think the sounds made me think that. I think the sounds made me I was like will you make them so you're a bad person It's the same thing as you like if you unknowingly make the sounds I'm un unconsciously reacting to them and then I'm being fueled by them and then they are you And then by hearing them I felt guilty like cuz I'm like oh, well I should I should block it out like I shouldn't be responding so strongly to this. Like what's my problem? And then
4: oh, it's true.
2: And then I felt guilty because if it was brought up to you then it's making you feel guilty because you don't know you're doing it. I don't know what happens from this point. Like I I don't know go do like behavioural therapy and like expose myself to it like that makes me want to throw up like I'm not doing that and I don't want it to harm like my relationship with you or like and I don't want it to run me you might not stop making these sounds and that's fine I might not know how to fix this thing or whether it's something that needs to be fixed and that's fine
4: but it's better that people become aware of it you know, you can't do anything about it. It's something that sets you off as a person because you like music and that doesn't set you off. So it's obviously a condition that is real. It's something that people actually do suffer from and you do. So, I mean, I can't hold that against you.
0: At least now that you've broached it with Dan he will be
2: aware of you. I feel like that's not the answer. I feel like the answer isn't like it, then it's making you the problem. I don't feel like that's the solution. I'm not saying
0: that. I'm saying that at least you're both on the same page, you know? So dad will know the reactions that you have towards him. Sometimes won't be personal. They'll only, will they be because you can't hear the noises that he's making. It's I think that's easier to accept, that not wanting to be in your company because you don't want to be around him.
4: Yeah, it's not a lot true? easier to accept, yeah. I don't know if there's any solution to it, but at least being aware that you're not the only one. I think it's better than being in isolation because I used to suffer really badly from depression and finding out that other people had it didn't solve my depression, but it made me at least feel that I wasn't alone with the condition. So I'd rather know about it and rather be educated than you not know that other people have the same condition. I feel really
2: lucky that I could talk with my dad about this in the way that we did, but I will still sit there and I'll notice the sounds that he makes And now I also feel more aware of them, like hyper-aware. I'm not just noticing sounds that he makes. I'm looking out for sounds maybe even made by other people when I'm sitting on the bus, when I'm at work. I went into this thinking that I could potentially solve a problem, but in some ways maybe I've made it worse. And so this has made me think about whether or not I would want a diagnosis for my misophonia or whether that would be something that would suit me. I don't feel like there are ways or methods at this point that would really help me deal with my misophonia, and so maybe a diagnosis wouldn't help that much either. But I'm not blocking that out. I'm not blocking out that maybe something like that could work for me in the future. And also, I'm trying to not block out my dad. I'll no longer be the young kid running around erratically trying to escape these sounds that nobody else cares about, I'll be the slightly neurotic and tense-looking adult at the dinner table. But at least it's a start. This has been Think Health. This is our very last show for the year. But don't worry, we'll be back next year with plenty of more programs coming your way. If you are not already subscribed to the show, it is time to do so. All you have to do is jump on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, search for Think Health and press subscribe. Thank you to Ellen Lee Beater, Miles Herbert, Miles Martignoni and Shane Anderson for having a listen through to this story a couple of times and giving me some pointers. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time.